Well, good evening. You can make your way in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we're continuing to look at Jesus' parables that he uh, told back to back there in uh, Matthew chapter 13. So we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. So uh, I'll begin by reading this passage, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask for your help this evening as we uh, come to your word. Lord, um, pray that you would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would help us to see the value, the worth of Christ and his kingdom. Uh, Lord, give us eyes to see things that are invisible. Lord, give us spiritual eyes Give us a heart and a mind to see, comprehend spiritual things, that they would become more real to us than the chair we sit in this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So we've um, been looking at uh, these parables in Matthew chapter 13, and I know it's been a while. Um, But all of these parables in Matthew 13, well, after the parable of the sower, begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. So uh, we looked at the parable of of the weeds and the parable of the mustard seed and leaven last time I was with you. And we saw that these parables were to explain some unexpected things about how God's kingdom was coming and working through Jesus Christ. So we looked at the parable of the weeds and we saw that that illustrated that although the kingdom has come, has truly come in Jesus Christ, in his work, in his person, there is going to be a delay of what the Jews expected to happen when the kingdom came, and that was the immediate separation of the righteous and the wicked. That the kingdom has come in Jesus Christ, but yet the righteous and the wicked are still going to be living side by side for a time before the final judgment comes. And then we saw in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven that the kingdom of God has come in an unexpected way in that it seems small and insignificant. It seems it's something that can be trampled upon. It's something that doesn't seem very impressive. And so many people pass over it, pass by it, and pay it no mind. But now, Jesus, in these two parables, these back-to-back parables, which really have one united message, wants to emphasize the value of, of God's kingdom, its preciousness, its worth, even though it has come in an unimpressive way in this world, yet it is the most valuable, the most precious thing there is. So we look this evening at these these two parables, and both of them, of course, the, the shared theme in these two parables is the finding of something so valuable that the person is willing to trade all to have it. So we're going to look at three, three aspects that come out of this parable. Number one, the glory 
and the value of God's kingdom. Number two, the hiddenness of that kingdom from most people's understanding. And then thirdly, that those who do see it, those who do see the value of that kingdom should be willing to trade all, give up all to gain that kingdom. So first of all, let's, let's look at the value of the kingdom of God, the value of entering in to God's final kingdom. We might call it heaven. We might call it the new heavens and the new earth. Entering into this kingdom that God has prepared, that Christ has bought for his people. It's, it's really hard to you know, describe and estimate the, the value of something like the kingdom of God. And I think there's a couple ways that I hope, Lord willing, will help us to see the value and the glory of God's kingdom. And one of those ways, where we're going to start, we can see the value of entering God's kingdom when we compare it with the hell that we deserve. And that's where we're going to start tonight. Ephesians, I promise we won't stay there the entire time, but that's where we're going to start. As it has been said, right, a a beautiful diamond shines best when you put it against the black backdrop. So Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 paints this picture of of our sin, right? You are dead, chapter 2 verse 1, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have this phrase in verse 3, the, by nature children of wrath. And I want to just kind of try to unpack that phrase a second. We are called in this scripture children of wrath. When God made mankind, he created Adam as our head and as our representative. And God made a covenant with Adam. And by Adam's representation, this covenant was also with all humanity. All of us here in this room. All people in this world. And this covenant of works would provide life and peace and joy for Adam and for his descendants if Adam would obey God. But it would result in death and misery and wrath if Adam failed to obey God. And this would not just be for Adam and Eve individually. This is what we have to understand. But this would be the result for all of their natural descendants. All humanity would fare as their covenant head performed. That's what a covenant means. You have a covenant. God makes a covenant with a man or with a person. We have a representative of that covenant. Adam. And then later on we have Noah. And then we have Abraham or Moses or David, a head of that covenant. However, the head of that covenant performed, that's how everyone represented in that covenant would perform. The consequences would go to them. And of course, we know what happened. Our statement of faith, 1689, summarizes it. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation. Adam sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. The representative of our covenant failed. He disobeyed. And so, all mankind fell in Adam, sharing in his sin and in the corrupted nature that resulted. All right, that, that's the teaching of the fall, of the original sin, right? So we have to understand, we are, 
We are not born neutral. We are not born innocent. We are born into an already broken covenant. Every one of us, all humanity, every race, every nationality, all of us coming from Adam are born into this broken covenant. We are born into the rebellion that Adam began. And not only are we born into it, we, we perpetuate it. We keep it going. What Adam began, we continue. Even at the youngest ages. And so, we are born into this broken covenant. We are born servants of sin from birth. We are under the displeasure and the wrath of God and subject to death and misery, both in this life and for all eternity, unless the Lord Jesus sets us free. That's our condition. Right? It's interesting to think about the, the concept of a kingdom, right? Jesus uses this idea, the kingdom of God, right? A kingdom is a place where a king rules, right? Where a king is obeyed. He has subjects, and those subjects obey him and serve him, right? When we sinned, we rebelled against that kingdom, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is his kingdom. This universe is God's kingdom. But here within this kingdom, a rebellion has started. It started with Adam and Eve, and it's been perpetuated by all of us, every one of us, since that time. We're in his kingdom, but we are rebels in that kingdom. We're trying to get rid of the king, and of course, the king is not going to have it. The king is going to put down this rebellion. He's going to punish those who rebel against him. And that is what hell is. It is the just punishment of those who rebel against their God and their creator. And so we see because of this broken covenant that we are deserving of nothing but, but death and misery in this life and in the life to come. And so we see the scripture describing that punishment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, utter darkness, eternal fire. These are just some of the descriptions given to hell in the scriptures. And we must understand that this hell is what we justly deserve from the youngest to the oldest from the most saintly among us this evening to the worst of us, we are all deserving of experiencing the fullest measure of God's wrath forever and ever without rest and without end. Now that is a dark picture. But we have to understand it's a, it's a reality. It's, it's true. It's just. Because of our sin... This is, we do not deserve to enter into the blessedness of God's kingdom. We deserve to be thrown out into outer darkness. So now then, let's contrast that, the, the hell that we deserve, contrast that with the joys and the blessings that are described in the scriptures of what God's kingdom looks like. So we see one of the, the best descriptions uh, of God's kingdom and the joy of God's kingdom, of course, is found in Revelation chapter 21. So let's turn over there. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. As their God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So in these verses, we see described a renewed creation where God will dwell with mankind and the results of sin that we just talked about, the results of the curse that came following sin will be removed. Notice all these things, right? He will wipe every tear from their eyes, sorrow. And what are the causes of these tears? Death. Death will be no more. What, what was the result of, right? In the day that you sin, you shall surely die. Death is a result of sin. In this kingdom, in God's kingdom, death will be no more. We will not experience, personally, we will not experience death, nor will those that we love die. Death will be gone. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. Right, again, think of the curse that was spoken after sin, right, in Genesis chapter 3. In pain, you will bring forth children. Pain, gone. No more pain. Right, in toil, in sweat and blood and tears, you will bring forth your food. Gone. All of that is gone. Here is a kingdom, a kingdom where, where all the frustration and pain and sorrow that we experience in this life will be wiped away. It will not exist. Pain, sicknesses, diseases, sorrows, mourning, frustration will not exist in this kingdom. It will be a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of life, a kingdom of health. What a burden will be lifted. Right? It is no wonder the, the author of Hebrews describes this heavenly life as rest. You will enter my rest. What a burden will be lifted when we enter this kingdom and the weight of the curse rolls off of our shoulders. We'll be like the woman in Jesus' and in the Gospels who was bound by Satan and bent over for years. And Jesus heals and releases her from that burden. And she stands upright and free. We will, as the scripture says, go out with joy, leaping like a calf released from the stall, jumping and leaping and praising God in this kingdom. My friend, do you have any infirmities in this life? They will not be in this kingdom. When you enter that kingdom, those infirmities will not follow you. You will, be, you will have a resurrected body. One that will not decay, grow old, get arthritis or, or cancer or anything else. It will be a perfect kingdom. And we go on in, here in Revelation 21. Hold on, I think I skipped something here. All right, well, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the... No, I'm... What am I in? Oh, yes, okay, I think I'm there. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. These verses describe the glory and the beauty of God's kingdom. This heavenly kingdom will radiate and glow with the glory and beauty of God. John here tries to take the best images that the world can offer, right? Jasper, crystal, and he tries to describe the beauty of God's kingdom. 
See, the highest beauties of this fallen world cannot even compare. They are inadequate to describe the least glimpse of the beauty and glory of God's kingdom. All right, word, I mean, words fail. This is the, the frustrating task of being a preacher. You, you come to passages like this and you're, you're, you're just groping for, for words. And how, do, how, would a, how do, am I supposed to describe how beautiful the kingdom of God is? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. I, I can't stretch language enough for us to understand or even give a, a glimpse of the beauty of God's kingdom. Right? Imagine the, the most beautiful you know, sunset or out on the lake or the highest mountain or the Grand Canyon or whatever it is, and that is won't even compare to the beauties and glories of the renewed creation, one that is not marred by sin and death and destruction, one who just glows with the glory of God. So we see the value of entering God's kingdom when we see the joys, the bliss, the beauty that will be there. We also see the value of entering God's kingdom when we see the company that we will have there. The company that will be. Well, first, in Revelation 21, we will see what, who will not be there. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Right here is a beautiful, perfect, joyous kingdom. You might think, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the earth was that way when God created it, but something came in and spoiled it. Well, it will not be that way in God's renewed kingdom. Nothing will enter this kingdom that will ever spoil it, will ever cause it to fall back into sin or decay or destruction. Satan will not be able to enter this kingdom to deceive or make it or ruin it. The unclean will not be there. The wicked will not be there. No devil or tempter will be there. But who will be there? Well, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Let's jump back over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. God's elect will be there. His saints, the saints of old, and the saints present, and the saints of the future, they'll be there. Right? We, you know, sometimes we joke around about, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna, I want to talk to Abraham, or I want to talk to you know, Job, or I want to talk to you know, these saints of old. They will be there. Holy men and women. People who were faithful to the end. People we have read, read about in Scripture. People we read about in church history. Who were faithful. Who, who ran the race. Completed the race. Those who did great things known to the world. Those who did great things and are not known to us or to the world. Those who didn't do great things but persevered in the faith and made it to the end. They will be there. The saints will be there. Who else will be there? Revelation chapter 5 verse 11 Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Angels will be there. Heavenly beings that we can't even imagine. Heavenly beings who, who if we just saw a glimpse of them at this moment, we would fall down in terror because of their, their glory and beauty. Perhaps because of their strangeness to us. Angels will be there. Holy angels. Creatures of glory that we can't even imagine. The saints will be there. The angels will be there. But most of all, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, that we already read. And I heard, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Most of all, although these things that we've described about the heavenly kingdom are wonderful and glorious, this is what makes the eternal kingdom glorious. God is there. God is there. We will have sweet, unhindered fellowship with the eternal and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The veil will be removed, and we will be given hearts and minds and eyes with the capacity to know and enjoy and worship God in a way that we cannot even imagine right now. That we're unable to right now because we are weak, because we have remaining sin. That will be gone. And we'll be able to know and experience and worship the triune God, the, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what makes the kingdom glorious. God is there. God will be known as we read in the, in the psalm today. God is the source of all joy and pleasure. All goodness comes from Him and we will be with Him and fellowship with Him. It is a kingdom like no other you can imagine. There is nothing on earth that can compare to this. No idyllic society even comes close to this because sin has tainted everything in this world. Every joy, every good thing in this world is still tainted by sin. But this kingdom has none of that. All of that is wiped away. He makes all things new. Enter this kingdom. We also can see the value of entering this kingdom by the price that Jesus Christ paid for it. We can tell the value of something by the price that is paid for it. And brainstorming over this sermon, I was thinking about you know, the price of admission to certain places. You know, I, I just randomly looked up, you know, what does it cost? A ticket to you know, Disneyland Resort is like $300 to get a ticket into Disneyland Resort. You know, just to go into Disneyland is 150 some odd, and you, know, that's still, you still got to wait in the line. If you don't want to wait in the line, you got to pay more money than that. Right? The value of something is seen in the price someone is willing to pay to have it, to get into it. And so Mark, in Mark chapter 8, verse 37, we have the question, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? And think right now, what, what would the damned souls in hell be willing to give to escape their flames and their torment and to enter the joys of heaven. They would trade anything and everything that they had in life. All their money, every moment of time, every ounce of their blood, if only they would escape hell and enter the kingdom of heaven. They know the value of that kingdom. Jesus told a parable about a rich man in Lazarus 
I'm sure you're familiar with the parable. The rich man lived in luxury and glory every day and Lazarus was laid outside of his house and just wished he could have the crumbs from his table, but then the roles switch and they die and the rich man is now tormented in hell and Lazarus is sitting with Abraham in paradise. That rich man would have traded all of his riches for poverty. He would have traded places like that with Lazarus in life. He would have said, if that's what it takes, I'll take poverty. I'll sit outside the gate. You sit there. Give me sickness. Give me sores. Give me whatever. I just don't want to find myself in hell. He would have traded all of those things, but it wouldn't be enough. Psalm chapter 49 says that the ransom of a life is costly. The ransom of a life is costly. So to enter this blessed kingdom, we need a new head and representative. We need a second Adam. We need a man who is not stained with sin to not only make and keep a new covenant with God, But also we need a man who can stand in our place and pay for the sin and the breach under that first covenant. We need a new mediator. One who can take hold both of God and man and make reconciliation. And this we have in the God-man Jesus Christ. We have that new mediator. We have that second Adam. But what a price he paid for our redemption so that we could enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Let's turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Well, we'll start up in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were redeemed at a high price, but not silver and gold. No, no, no amount of money but with something more precious, with something more rare. The blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The blood of a sinless man. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our representative and redeemer, redeeming a group of chosen sinners, had to bear the wrath and the curse and the death that that group Deserved. He had to pay in full and atone in full for all their sins. And that is exactly what he did on the cross. He became that second Adam. He became a faithful high priest, a true high priest, a pure sacrifice for our sin, opening the way in to that kingdom, opening the way in to the kingdom of God. So we see how, I hope we see how precious this kingdom is. When we look at what we deserve, when we look at what this world offers only for a small and short time and we have to leave it, we have to face judgment, and we see what we are deserving, I hope we see that this kingdom is precious. But, in spite of how precious it is, it remains hidden and neglected by most people. Most people walk right past the truth of this kingdom. They walk right past the proclamation of this kingdom and how to enter it without any interest, without any notice whatsoever. And Jesus illustrated this with another parable found in Luke 
chapter 14, verse 15. He's feasting there with, with his fellow Jews. And a man feasting with Jesus exclaimed, How blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Won't it be great? Won't it be grand? And then Jesus told them a parable. He said a king invited many guests to his wedding feast. And he sent his servants out. Go tell them the feast is ready. The kingdom is prepared. Come in the kingdom. And they went to the first guy and the guy said, well, I just bought a field. I got to go check it out. Okay. He went to the second guy. Come, come into the kingdom. Oh, I just bought some oxen. I got to go, you know, give him a test drive. Okay. Goes the next guy. Come into the kingdom. Oh, I just got married, you know. I can't come. My wife is shy, I guess. I can't, don't go to parties. What? Do you see the, the, the point of this parable? We give lip service to heaven. We give lip service. Oh, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I'm going to be there. It'll be great. But in reality, people are refusing its offer every day. They neglect the means of entering that blessed kingdom. The scriptures, the gathering of God's people, the hearing of the word being preached. Remember in the parable of the sower. How do we enter that kingdom? You hear the word of God. It changes you. You bear fruit according to that word. You neglect the means of entering this kingdom in favor of worthless and temporary pursuits. This is how blind and foolish and insane fallen man is. We are insane. Who trades eternal joy? Who trades paradise in, with the living God for a fruit? Who trades their in, eternal inheritance for a bowl of beans like Esau? We do. We do. All the time. All the time. Every day God's word is there for us. Right there on the shelf. Right there. And we neglect it. Every week the saints gather to hear the word. But oh, you know what? I mean, it's deer season right now. I want to be out there. You know, I only have a short time to go hunting. I got to go right now. Or I got, no, I got this hobby. I got this thing to do. I got that thing to do. How we will bang our head against the ground on the day of judgment and say, what the heck was I thinking? What was I doing? Why? Why did I prefer these things? Why did I pursue sin? Why did I pursue the pipe dream of the American dream and not come to eternal life and not heed the invitation to eternal life? Who walks away from eternal life? But yet we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. My friend, are you blinded? Are you blinded by this world? And it's so easy. I understand. It is easy. Because this world is right in front of me. I can... Taste it. I can touch it. And I think if I just get more of this, then that will make me happy. But it doesn't. And so the gospel calls us to, to faith, to put your hope in what is not seen, to believe in something you can't touch yet, but is coming. When Christ splits the sky and the world is turned upside down, and the day of judgment comes. You have, to, you have to believe and live that. Know that that is coming. That is a reality. May God open our eyes to see the truth 
And not just truth, but glory in that truth. Beauty in that truth. Beauty in this Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, lastly, thirdly, the thing that this, these parables teach us is believers, we are to prefer this kingdom and be willing to trade all for it. John Calvin comments about these parables. He says they are intended to instruct believers to prefer the kingdom of heaven to the whole world and therefore to deny themselves and all the desires of the flesh that nothing may prevent them from obtaining so valuable a possession. Again, it reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, when, when Christian is convinced of his burden and the evangelist comes and says, you know, go to the gate, go to that narrow gate. And he plugs his ears and he says, life, life, eternal life. And he begins to run towards the kingdom. We, that's what we have to do. Is this true? Is this reality? Is, is this world passing away? Is there an eternal kingdom coming that cannot perish, spoil, or fade? Then give me that. I want that. Is Christ the only way into that? Give me Christ. I want Him. I will follow Him. So Christian, look at this heavenly kingdom that we've tried so pitifully to describe. We've considered some of its glories and its beauties and its joys. Is this kingdom not worth whatever cost or loss may be required in this life? Is it not worth it? It is. In both of these parables, we see that the man and the merchant both are willing to sell all they have to gain the object of their desire. And not only that, they did it with joy. All right, can you imagine a second if we showed up at the estate sale of this man who had gone out, he's checked out this field, saw there was a treasure in it, went home and said, honey, we are selling everything so that we can buy this field. And so they have an estate sale and you go to this estate sale and the guy's selling everything. I mean, his car is up for sale. His house is up for sale. His microwave, his TV, his fishing poles, his boat, all, everything, it's all up for sale. And you're like, have you lost your mind? Number one, how'd you get your wife to agree to that? That was a joke. They didn't get it. Right? He's, he's selling everything. And not only is he selling everything, He's selling everything with a smile on his face. He's not like, yeah, okay, selling my, selling my truck. With a smile on his face. And you're like, why are you doing this? I mean, are the creditors coming? Did you lose your job? Why? Are you? No, no, I found something better. I found something better. And so we have to have the same attitude, Christian. We have found something better. We have found a better kingdom, a better country, a better hope. We have it. And this world is sinking anyways. This world will be done. It will burn. But we have a better kingdom, a lasting kingdom. So, Christian, is this kingdom precious to you? Would you enter this kingdom? Let me close with a few exhortations. Do not let sin keep you from this kingdom. Matthew chapter 18, verse 8 and 9. Let's turn over there. Matthew 18, verse 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life, this kingdom, crippled or lame, 
than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Do not let sin keep you from entering this kingdom. As we already saw in Revelation 21, nothing unclean or defiled will enter this kingdom. We're preparing ourselves to enter this kingdom. Sin must go. Because sin will deceive you. Sin will pull you away from this kingdom. No matter what the cost. No matter how close these sins might be to our heart. They gotta go. They gotta go. And may God help us to put the knife to these sins. The Puritans called some of these sins bosom sins. The ones that are closest to the heart. The ones that we cherish the most. Let not sin keep you from this kingdom. But endeavor every day. It was interesting that in Sunday school this morning at Grace Emmanuel, uh, Pastor John was um, talking about church discipline under the um, heading of sanctification. And this is a side note, but it's interesting to think that how we as the church community help each other in this area of sanctification, in this area of discovering our sin and putting our sin to death. We need each other to help with that process. Because there are so many sins, like the nose on my face, I can't see it. But you can. You can see it, and you can help me. We can help each other to say, brother, there's some some pride in that. Brother, put these sins to death. Let's, Let's help each other on our way to this heavenly kingdom. Secondly, is this kingdom precious? Is it valuable to you? Would you enter it? then let no other allurements distract you. Let no other allurements distract you from this kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I'm sure you know the scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't let other things of this world distract you or allure you away from this pilgrimage. We are going to the kingdom. We are marching to the kingdom. Nothing else, let nothing else satisfy. Let us settle for nothing else. Seek the kingdom first. Is this kingdom precious to you? Would you enter it? Then let no trial discourage you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Therefore lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. We must go through many tribulations before we enter the kingdom of God. The the road to the kingdom of God is paved with many trials. Don't let those discourage you, no matter what. Lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. March on, saint. And lastly, is this kingdom valuable to you? Would you enter this kingdom? Then keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll end with this scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes to Jesus. Look to Him. 
He is the one who began this good work in you. He is the one who carries it on. He is the one who will finish it. Look to him, not your own strength. This is the beautiful thing about the Christian life, is it is one where Jesus begins and carries. He carries us. As we look to him, the, our, our head, as I said, the people in a covenant do perform only as well as the head of their covenant. Who is the head of our new covenant? It is Jesus Christ. And he has done all. He has made full atonement. He has conquered death. He has risen. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. We belong to him. Our victory is sure through him. So endure. Lay aside every weight. Run with endurance the race set before you. Press on to the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would just apply this truth. Lord, help us to see the value of your kingdom. Lord, help us every day as we wake up and there are many distractions and there are many things pulling our heart and pulling our mind. Oh, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Christ, that we would look to him daily, give us greater understanding of his preciousness, of his worth. Help us, O oh God, to run with perseverance this race. O oh God, I pray you would strengthen those who feel they have feeble hands and weak knees, O oh God, that you would strengthen them those who may be going through trial, that you would give them strength and grace, O oh God. And help us, O oh God, no matter what may come, Lord, to trade all for this kingdom. Help us to see the value and glory of this kingdom and with joy, just as Christ endured with joy, that we would live in joy to give up the things of this world, knowing we have something better, something lasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.